You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And the fact that I hesitated when naming my own place of employment indicates, well, we're getting near the end of the fall semester and we are raggedy. Uh, With me is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College and wherever it is. Uh, Nathan, how are you at the end of this raggedy fall? Uh, My raggedy fall ended a week ago, so I'm actually feeling pretty good. Yeah, and it's Franklin Springs, Georgia. I knew, but it's the joke. Jokes are always funnier when you explain them. I know, I know. Um, I've got a buddy, uh, actually one of our long-time listeners, Todd Hauer. Hi, Todd. Uh, Who He'll tell a joke at length, and then he will at length explain the joke um, sort of seriously the way one would to a four-year-old and somehow the explanation afterwards is actually funnier than the joke Jerry Lewis said the key to comedy was to tell the audience what you were going to do then do it then tell the audience that it has been done alright but that's Jerry excellent. Lewis isn't funny at all so I'm not sure that that's <laughs> great advice <laughs> Well, the gentleman who doesn't think that Jerry Lewis is funny at all, in spite of being able to walk us point by point through his method, is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Hello, Michael. Hello. Well, before we get to today's topic, which is a surprise to everyone, uh, what news about the network do we need to uh, point out? A surprise to everyone who hasn't looked at the title of the episode on their pod feeder. Yeah. At any rate, uh, the Sectarian Review has a new episode. Danny Anderson and I uh, recorded a sort of obituary episode for Stan Lee and also a preview for the as-yet-planned-out crossover event that we're going to do for Stan Lee. Um, And we basically promised it, so sorry, guys. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I mean, I'm fine with that. Well, I mean, obviously, all throughout the network, other interesting things are going on. Um, I don't know what will have surfaced by the time this goes out. I think there might be a Christian feminist podcast by the time this airs. Uh, the oh, other, yeah. On Trifles. Okay. It's with Victoria oh. and Katie and a house guest we had last week. Right, right, right. And you love that one, right? I love that play. I haven't heard the episode. Right. I, I, yes, that, that, was, that was what I was indicating. I left the now, house I, while they were recording it. <laughs> and I was in the other room, so I guess we'll, 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 both have to, we'll both have to catch up what was going on on the premises of our own homes. Today, our topic is the uh, late medieval play Everyman, uh, which comes from, uh, it comes from England. And maybe you've heard of it, maybe, maybe you've... Uh, you, you covered it in a, in a literature survey. Sometimes it gets created there, sometimes not. Uh, but bef- to introduce it, Nathan, uh, what sort of thing is Everyman? Uh, who performed it? For what sort of audience? What would it be like to watch it? And, well, tell us the difference between mystery, miracle, and morality plays while you're at it. Well, Everyman is a play uh, that comes to us from an era uh, before... I guess extensive publication records, so we have to make our best educated guess as to its exact origin. It's probably uh, sometime in the late 15th century. Uh, So, you know, there is a Dutch version of it and then an English version of it from roughly the same period. People generally think that the Dutch uh, version is original and the English is an adaptation of it. But again, that's largely speculation. 
this would have been a uh, traveling theater troupe. Uh, these would have been professional actors, so I mean, they would have made what pittance they make, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I mean, taking collections as they went from town to town. Uh, and these would have been, you know, some of the things that you might have heard about uh, actors there in the uh, late Middle Ages, the, uh, you know, the early Renaissance, you know, these would have been people who, you know, were looked on with suspicion as traveling performers and so on and so forth. As far as the three kinds of uh, medieval plays that David mentioned, the three M's, uh, as we get taught in the English department, uh, one interesting thing about mystery and miracle plays uh, is that, depending on which uh, anthology of medieval drama you're looking at, uh, you can have very different dividing lines and very different plays falling into each of those. The one that I tend to go with, and David, I'll, I'll be glad to hear uh, how you divide between the two, uh, is that miracle plays have to do with events that are not directly based on the Bible, whereas mystery plays tend to be based on uh, biblical events. Another account of it is that mystery plays, you know, emerge out of the, the ministry, uh, which are the professional guilds of the medieval world so that you know when for instance the York cycle was being performed uh, it would be the bakers doing the final judgment and throwing the bread people in the hell mouth and so on and so forth <laughs> um, which is a lovely story uh, I do remember Dr. Shaw when I took uh, uh, Middle English literature exclusive of Chaucer at University of Georgia uh, insisted on that latter division that you know the mystery plays were, were guild plays and that we shouldn't think of them as, you know, sacraments or mysteries in the sense of, you know, something to be solved or something like that, but it's from that ministry uh, tradition. Uh, so, I mean, that's the general background we're talking about. This is a period well before uh, purpose-built playhouses. Uh, you know, one of my uh, comprehensive, what, what was that event back in 2008? My comprehensive exam uh, oral questions was when does renaissance drama begin and the answer that I gave and I passed so it must have been all right uh, was that the purpose-built playhouse was sort of the mark of a new kind of drama those start to appear in England roughly speaking in the 1560s 1570s uh, so this is a traveling show that comes well before that so uh, David that was kind of a, a scattershot answer to your question are there any uh, gaps you'd want to fill there no, I, I appreciate the distinction that you made uh, between uh, traveling professional players versus uh, versus the guild plays that you have in in kind of the the, the mystery cycles, um, and then also the, the the distinction between the content. Uh, I, I would kind of waffle waffle between them as to what what exactly mystery means, um, but you know the 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 in the in the cycle plays, you know, like you said. Uh, people would be watching uh, the performers on stage as folks from their own town who have positions of greater and lesser um, importance within a respected uh, local institution versus something like Everyman, which is performed by potentially a stranger, maybe even a foreigner, um, and certainly not someone that you would, you know, sort of look up, look up, look up at the stage and say, "Oh, look, you know, there's, there's, there's Uncle Bob," or whatever. Um, that kind of a different relationship between those who are watching and those who are performing. Or there goes the baker with his rolls, like always. He'll throw that <laughs> sinner into hell. That's lovely. Crying out loud. Uh, I, well, I had something to add, David. I know that I'm just a humble Americanist. <laughs> but I have a quote here from someone who's not. This is a guy, maybe you can tell me if it's a credible source, Robert Potter. The book is called The English Morality Play. Cool. He says, The morality plays have frequently been mistaken for naive treatises on virtue. They are, in fact, the call to a specific religious act. If we are to understand the plays, we must clearly understand the action which they promulgate and ultimately represent. It is the acknowledgement, confession, and forgiveness of sin institutionalized in medieval Christianity as a sacrament of penance. So I think, and I'm not an expert, but what, what that quote makes me think of is like a traveling evangelist who goes around and ends with an altar call. 
um, the morality play, if, if that description is correct, seems to have been a similar thing um, that, that's trying to push you into going to confession and uh, receiving your penance at the end of the play. And certainly, um, certainly every man has that vibe to it. Oh, certainly. It's basically a commercial for the confessional. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that works. And one other de- one other distinction, David. I just realized I, I bounced over this when I was going through the survey. The miracle in the mystery plays uh, tend to feature human and angelic uh, characters, uh, whereas the morality plays, I mean, tend to feature allegorical figures uh, more than particular individuals. Uh, so I mean, this is you know when sometimes you hear. Uh, a news story being uh, called a morality play rather than real journalism. That's the critique that's being made is that, you know, you are taking some figure usually from the opposing political party and turning them into a figure for vice or sin or damnation rather than treating them as a complex human being. So many of our current politicians though, are just figures of vice and corruption rather than complex human beings. Well, <laughs> it, I feel like we're living it, it ain't, in a morality play. It ain't they're doing it for themselves. They're really out to get you. <laughs> and like the uh, like the real morality plays, we should all be going to confession afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> well, every man uh, as an allegory, and and thank you for 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 putting that that piece in play too, Nathan. Um, every man as an allegory. Uh, is developing a classic, uh, a classic metaphor, um, the the homo viator metaphor. Um, so, Michael, what what is that metaphor, and what work is it doing in this text and in other texts that you might want to bring into the conversation? I will say you're probably pronouncing it correctly, but I'm going to call it homo viator because that's what I'm used to saying. I don't know which one's right, but it's probably yours. Uh, The basic notion here is that human life is a pilgrimage toward death and toward our real home in heaven. So um, we don't really belong on this earth. We're not meant to be at home here. And as we'll see, when we get to the 20th century, that feeling of unhomeliness becomes very important. But in fact, the roots of this go all the way back to the Bible. Uh, Jesus, as I hope our listeners know, was an itinerant preacher. And so he was... uh, pretty frequently on the move. Uh, He says in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, The disciples in uh, what what has always seemed like a strange episode to me before Jesus's ministry really begins, he sends the disciples from town to town performing miracles and he tells them to expect unfriendly greetings. Matthew 10, 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. And so they're supposed to flee from town to town, escaping persecution. And and for that reason, most of the disciples die violent deaths at the hands of the people whom they're evangelizing. And Jesus's instructions make it clear that uh, that's what they should expect because this world is not their home. Augustine takes what I t- what I see as very practical advice from Jesus, and he, he turns it into a metaphysical reality. Um, you see this in the very famous opening to the confessions. You stir a man to take pleasure in praising you because you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Uh, he returns to the theme at the end of book nine. He says, uh, for this city, the New Jerusalem, your pilgrim people yearn from their leaving it to their return. And then in book 10, he expands it to the entire church over time and space. Every, the, the entire church, uh, universal, from his day to ours and all the way back to the time of the apostles, we're united by our pilgrimage. And yet, everybody's pilgrimage is undertaken alone, just like it is in every man. So you have to choose to be a pilgrim, but the, pilgrim, the pilgrimage itself is undertaken by grace. So this is not something you can just decide to do. It's given to you to do, and yet you also decide to do it, if that makes sense. Thomas Aquinas connects the homo viator to hope, hope that is grounded not in the temporal world of human beings, but in the eternal world of God. Uh, So for Thomas, we recognize that the world isn't what it should be, and so we yearn for another world. This means that our lives for Thomas are oriented toward our real homeland, and that's the only way to make sense of this world. 
And um, once again, that hope really comes only through faith. They're, they're very closely connected virtues for Thomas. The Divine Comedy uh, is a concrete adaptation of Aquinas, the, the, the yeah. famous first lines, midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood for I had wandered off from the straight path. And I, I, I like those lines because it serves as a really useful contrast. He's not a pilgrim at the beginning of that poem. He's a wanderer. The wanderer doesn't know where he's going. And so he's, you know, gets lost in this wood. The pilgrim has a direction. And it's the direction that Dante gets from Virgil, who represents human reason, and ultimately from Beatrice, who represents divine reason. Uh, another thing you get from Dante is that the pilgrimage is not about the worthiness of the pilgrim. It's about the worthiness of the destination. So Dante complains several times, I think especially in the Inferno, that he's not good enough to be accompanying Virgil. And Virgil tells him it doesn't matter if he's good enough. So again, we see this as yep. something that comes to us by grace, not something we earn or something that we just, you know, undertake. We we are given this. Uh it's, it's largely a Catholic idea in, in my reading, but uh, Protestantism has one great homo viator narrative, which is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, yep. which I am on the record as hating with every fiber of my being. <laughs> in Pilgrim's Progress, as you will remember, the Christian, uh, imaginatively named Christian, makes his way toward the celestial city. He's distracted by false guides like worldly wise man and atheist. And he's accompanied by hopeful, which is is a strikingly Thomist way of looking at things for someone who is a you know early Protestant. Gabriel Marcel, and this is where I get the idea. Gabriel Marcel picks up this idea in the twentieth century as a French Catholic philosopher, uh, and again he connects it with hope and a power beyond our own power. And in fact, his book Homo Viator is subtitled uh, "Toward a Metaphysic of Hope." So uh, you really see how important hope is for this. And it, it makes sense if you put him in context, because his rough contemporaries, actually a generation later, but basically his contemporaries, Camus and Sartre, talk about the meaninglessness of human life. And Marcel says that that's only apparent meaninglessness because the earth is not our home. And if you recognize that, you'll recognize that the meaninglessness of this earth is only because we haven't put it into proper context. The meaning comes only when we recognize that we're on our way to our actual home. That is a very mm -hmm. brief uh, explanation of Homo Viator. Have I left anything out? Uh, I would want to go a little bit earlier and talk about the one of the ceremonies that Deuteronomy lays out. Uh, when the people of Israel come to bring grain offerings, uh, they set their basket down before the Lord there in Deuteronomy 26. And part of the verbal response of the people when the priest takes the uh, basket from them, this is Deuteronomy 26, 5, uh, you shall make your response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. Um, so this is an instance very early uh, in you know the biblical tradition of regarding Israel communally uh, as a pilgrim people, right? So the idea that, you know, this is a people constituted by their journey, you know, towards the promised land is right there, you know, in the earliest, some of the earliest ceremonies that we've got uh, in the Old Testament as well. Uh, David, any other bits that you'd want to throw in there? Well, just the... When, when that note gets picked up in the um, appropriately named epistle to the Hebrews, uh, and so, you know, that audience should, should, should have recognized it from that source you just named, um, Hebrews 11, these, speaking of Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland um and then there's the you know just the one the wonderful gospel quartet quartet song looking for a city which you know if anybody knows that and now i've put I've, I've given you an earworm for the day you're welcome have i left out anything meaningful between bunyan and marcel i it this this strikes me as a concept that kind of went away it fell out of favor a little bit maybe because the enlightenment is so this world focused that 
that it became more difficult to see yourself as not being at home there? One, um, I mean, Pilgrim's Progress becomes incredibly important in the American self-conception, but they also tend to, that you can also see kind of early American writings in which New England and the colonies themselves were the destination of the pilgrims. Right. Right. So, um, so the, the, the home of Viator is still sort of there, but the destination becomes more this worldly. Um, I was reading, I mean, I have to look it up again, uh, but it was a, uh, a narrative, um, told by, uh, a husband and wife who were slaves who escaped to the North. Um, and in, in that particular narrative, uh, they both, they both were literate, uh, and had read Pilgrim's Progress and framed their journey to, to the North, um, in, in terms of Pilgrim's Progress. That, that, yeah, that as they were nearing the North, um, it was like, you know, it was like Pilgrim getting, getting near the heavenly city. Well, and now that you mention it, this shows my own racial blindness. A lot of, a lot of African-American folk art from the 19th and 20th century deals with the fact that this world is not our home for obvious reasons. Uh, that You can only see the world as your home if you're relatively comfortable in it. Um, and so I, I would think the homo viator thing, before we all became depressed and uh, unhomely, uh, I, I suspect it belonged mostly to the, the poor and the oppressed. It's easier for exiles and aliens to recognize the truth about that status. Um, those of us who are comfy uh, don't see it as clearly. Well, when death arrives for every man, our hero's reaction is, for my money, one of the most poignant quotes in the whole work, O oh, death, thou comest when I had thee least in mind. So Nathan, what sort of good might it have done every man to have death in mind? And I will be disappointed if you do not use the terms memento mori and dasein. Well, first of all, this is a notion that uh, certainly isn't original with Christianity. I mean, as far back as Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, uh, we have the notion that the philosophical life is a preparation for death. Um, and Christianity, you know, picks up that uh, spiritual tradition of meditating on death from them and from the Stoics. Uh, and it becomes, you know, a, a central practice within Christian spirituality so that uh, we do get this Latin phrase "memento mori," uh, the you know the taking or being mindful of one's own death, right? Uh, and this is a multi-dimensional practice, really. Uh, what often gets focused on is you know making sure that you have uh, confessed all of your sins and made things right with everyone, uh, so that you don't get surprised when the final accounting happens. We're going to talk about accounting metaphors as we roll along here but it's also a sense that uh we are mortals you know which comes from you know that that latin and then french tradition of of you know of death as the defining uh characteristic of human existence uh everything that we do and of course it's much older than medieval christianity again if you go back to the epic of gilgamesh uh you know what makes the character right. utnapishtim so pitiable really uh is that he has achieved everlasting life and therefore nothing in his life has any urgency or any meaning so it's just one damn thing after another uh to quote stan Harawas. i wasn't cussing there i was quoting Harawas. um <laughs> but uh <laughs> now uh you know as david noted you know this is something that gets picked up in uh modern philosophy uh, Martin Heidegger talks about being towards death as, again, you know, the central uh, characteristic of, of Dasein, which is the pe peculiarly human existence that takes a stand on its own existence. Uh, so it's something that, you know, certainly has its place uh, in this particular play as a worry about an afterlife fate, but... Uh, but it doesn't seem to end there. It doesn't run out of gas if you take away the afterlife emphasis. So uh, there's a lot going on there, and I, I feel like we should uh, call on someone who reads a lot of existentialists to comment on this further. David, do you know anyone? I, I think I might know a guy. 
Michael? I, th I think one really important thing here is that every man is really isolated by his death. And he, they, like everything else in this play, it's literalized. He has, he has people he knows named Fellowship, Kindred, and Cousin. And all of them swear absolute fealty to him. And then when he tells them he's dying, when he tells them death is coming for him, uh, they all just uh, they all just fly away. I mean, there's a really funny one where uh, I can't remember if it's Kindred or Cousin, but whoever it is says that he uh, he can't come with them because he stubbed his toe. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, it, it's one of those scenes where I know it's supposed to be funny, but I feel a little bit bad for finding it as funny as I do. So I that that isolation is is key to this. This is this is something that absolutely must be undergone. It's death's coming for all of us, and uh, and it must be undergone alone. It's isolating, and that that fits right in with with what Heidegger says about death. Right, death is this great alienating, anxiety-producing force that can nevertheless be good for us, and uh, and and you get that here too because death is the servant of God. I mean, death is ultimately what gives what brings every man his redemption. Heidegger doesn't really talk about redemption, but I think um, I think Heidegger is operating from a rather medieval attitude in that sense. And I mean, I think I've said on this show before that I think of Heidegger essentially as a medieval Catholic heretic. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> uh, and and you know, just to for our listeners who haven't read this, first of all, it's not a long play, so uh, you know, find a text online and read it. It'll take you a couple hours at, at the most, I would think. Uh, but it's very literal in this one. I mean, you know, in the opening scene, God says, hey, death. And death says, yes, God. And God says, go get every man. And death says, okay. <laughs> yeah, death is God's messenger. Which is interesting. And, and death is given absolute dominion over the world, but it's a temporary dominion. So he's, he's given, he gets everybody, but ultimately he answers to God. So in some ways, death is to be feared. And in other ways, he's not to be feared at all if, you're, if your trust is in the right place. Right. I mean, it's an interesting, uh, you know, narrative structure because, I mean, the echoes of the beginning of Job are very clear, but instead of Hasatan in the Hebrew or, or Satan in, you know, Christian appropriations of it, uh, you know, it is simply the allegorical figure death, right? So, I mean, there's no sense that uh, death has any, you know, plots to uh, do in every man. I mean, it's a very straightforward God sends him, death does what death does. Yeah. Yeah, this is not the, oh, death, where, where is your sting, necessarily. This is just sort of the mortal fact, as it were. Well, and I, I think it makes sense because I think for many people, uh, the reason they turn to God is that they recognize they're going to die and that, you know, something might happen afterwards. Right. It's it's the pressure of it. Um, as, I, as I was reading Every Man, um, and this is because uh, Kate, Katie has been just sort of binge listening to old cds in the van because our kid like our kids like music and she'd left oh brother where art thou in there and uh on that soundtrack there's uh the that old uh the old gospel song you gotta walk that lonesome valley well you gotta go by yourself ain't nobody else gonna go there for you you gotta though go there by yourself and uh, it was just reminding me of how this how this tradition is I mean, really, really pervasive, but a lot of times it's it's not the thing that the the folks at the top of society are interested in or are concerned about. But it tends to be there, you know, lurking, lurking with the humble. That these things are often perennial um, in the in in the humbler spaces. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that was a that was a smart guy that said that, and it's true. Well, each of us will give an account of himself to God, says Paul in Romans fourteen twelve. For those who want to write it down, um, and so will every man give his account. But in this play, um, the account sounds more like an audit than like the witness stand. <laughs> 
So, Michael, uh, what do you make of all the financial metaphors in every man? How do they, how might they frame useful self-examination, or could they be unproductive or, or misleading? I have to say I didn't notice them until you asked this question, so I went back and looked at them. And, and I think what they're doing is suggesting that every man has misunderstood finances. He has focused hmm. on the, the wrong kind of finances. He's focused on his material rather than his spiritual finances. And so when he when he first meets good, uh, is it just goods? Is that is that what he calls his wealth? In this translation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so when he first meets goods, they announce that they've just been piled up in a corner, uh, which which is clearly a reference to that uh, that verse from Matthew about not storing yourself treasures on earth. But I mean, he's not even spending them; they're just stacked up. Um, and and so you, you see right away how uh, disordered his relationship with money is. And in fact, that's what that's what goods tell him that that in fact you don't. It's not so much that I'm evil, although he waff- goods waffles a little bit on that. Yeah, uh, it's 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 that you you loved me more than you loved God, and you should have given some of me away um, in order to uh, in order to love God better. And in fact, at the end of the play, every man does give half of his wealth away. And what I take to be a, an echo of the Zacchaeus story. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. Wealth in this. And this play is a little bit like death in that it has dominion, but it only has it in the earthly realm, which is one reason why uh, he can't follow. Uh, also, a bit like death, it is a spiritual curse. It is poisonous to the soul. And uh, one thing that pleases Goods is that when every man dies, uh, Goods are going to be passed on to someone else, and it's going to kill him too. <laughs> So I, I, I really think all the all the financial metaphors about about giving an account is is essentially just to just to show that he's been keeping the wrong kind of accounts. He knows how much money he has stored away. He really has no idea what the condi- condition of his soul is. Um, and in, in fact, it's much worse than he could have imagined, in part because he knows so much about how much money he has stored away. Every man, um, I, I would say, is, is ultimately a call to start paying attention to the bank book of virtue rather than your bank book of money. Mm. Yeah. I think that's about right. And I mean, when death first approaches, I mean, that's one of the worries that every man has is that, you know, he doesn't even know uh, what his ledger book looks like, spiritually speaking. Right. Doesn't even seem to know that he has one. I mean, one of the first things that death tells him is that his life itself was a loan. And now here comes the time to, to settle accounts. He didn't see it coming. Uh, one of the things that I thought was uh, was interesting pursuing it, pursuing it further, he tries to buy death off, you know, you know, still misunderstanding what money is for. Oh, that's right. That's right. You know, and death, <laughs> death's like, you, this is, this is not, uh, thy, thy book of count with thee, uh, with thee thou bring for turn again. Thou cannot by any way. And look, thou be sure of thy reckoning for before God, thou shalt answer and show thy many bad deeds and good, but a few, how thou hast spent thy life. Oh, right. interesting. Yeah, it's you know, you're you're gonna get, you're gonna go show your ledger, and you better have done your math right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, spend your life is one of those metaphors that has stopped being a metaphor because it's so commonly used. Like the metaphor of talents. Well, yeah, well. I mean that that's just a yeah that's that <laughs> that's one of my pet thieves, but I won't go off on that right now. Well, I think it's relevant though because you know. That I, I think you know the, the the notion that that God God loans you goods, whether material goods or even the good of yourself, and uh, part of, part of judgment is uh, is a right use of goods, not merely having avoided misdeeds, but also a right use of that which with which you, with which you were entrusted. And every man every man hasn't done that. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, what if I want to live uh, live my life financially, Michael? Is is, is are there, is there any in, any ways in which this approach might um, 
be misleading or or incomplete what what approach is that what do you mean well if if i if i think about you know how how i will you know give an account one day or how i ought to live virtuously if i think of it mainly as you know one day i'll settle accounts um <laughs> or or to put it another way michael should we take the good place literally yeah i was just thinking about the good place yeah, I mean, you run into that problem, right? It's a it's a kind of utilitarian ethic in its way that, that you, you weigh up all the things you've done right versus all the things you've done wrong. And if one outweighs the other, uh, you go one place. And if the other outweighs the one, you go the other. Uh, but I think, the, I think the play's presentation of virtue is more complicated than that. I don't think ultimately it's just a... It's, it's, it's just a matter of... Uh, Profit and loss. I, I think. I think there's something more sophisticated going on than that. Good. Good. Yeah. I agree. But I. I think it. It can be. It's. It's so foregrounded. Um, as I. As I was reading it, and I covered it. Um, taught it. Taught it recently. Uh, in a medieval lit class. Uh, that. That way of thinking was so foregrounded. Um, it's. It's. It was. It was useful. But I was also glad of other things the play said because by itself. You're right. It can it can end up making uh, I both the virtue and the vice just in some way empty counters in the way that money is. This is a I I, I this just occurred to me and I can't answer the question, but this is a pre capitalist society, right? Is the is the way they thought about money meaningfully different than the way we think about money in terms of the play? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, if if you look at, um, oh gosh, which which circle is it? Four, five, where the wasters and spenders are. Um, yeah, it's either four or five. Keep rolling. Yeah, and the the first encounter in that circle is with Plutus, um, sort of the 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 guardian of that realm, who. Papi Satan, alepi, alepi, alepi. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and all it takes is a rebuke from Virgil, and he just deflates like literally deflates because he's this big empty thing um and then the the punishment of those who hoarded and those who wasted wealth is is just to continue for eternity this sort of perpetual parody of a game of exchange as they roll giant weights back and forth of each other shrieking at each other's obvious moral you know moral deficiency um it, it, to me, it seems like a like like a parody of money as vanity. Um, I mean, at least you know that's the way I read it. Um, the, the the notion that wealth is this empty thing that really only matters during this life, and then and and ultimately will be useless is is a a, pre, a pretty common part of uh, critiques of wealth. Um, you find it in you know you find it in Langland especially. Uh, and, and and others as well. So you know, I, I think even though it's 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 pre-capitalist, um, the notion that money is empty, even if the money is gold, <laughs> um, I think is I I would say that 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 was there. Well, every man is a popular presentation of personal salvation, which is uh, and about as close as you can get in Tudor England to a four spiritual laws tract. At least as far as I know. <laughs> However, um, I can't help thinking that one contemporary theologian, Martin Luther, might have objected at certain points. Um, I think it's kind of fun to think that Martin Luther might have actually been able to watch every man. Um, so what gospel does every man present, Nathan? And how might Luther critique it? And how might another contemporary, and you can pick who, who you want, um, have responded to Luther's critiques? Well, certainly. I mean, this is a play whose gospel, uh, I'd say, has roots in Ephesians 2, which is a favorite, you know, passage of contention there in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, to be sure, Ephesians 2 says that we are saved uh, by the grace of God through the faith of, of or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then it also says, for the sake of good works. And the way that those three things relate to each other uh, is really, you know, at the heart of, you know, the strong disputes 
uh, to put it very mildly, uh, of the you know early 16th century. So I can imagine that Luther looking at this play, uh, and you're right, it is fun to imagine you know uh, what he would have thought if he had seen a a traveling company do this. Uh, likely would have said that you know the focus on good deeds in this play uh, is itself a betrayal of the gospel. Uh, at the end of this play, and I don't think we're in you know too much danger of doing spoiler alerts for a 600 <laughs> play. Uh, but at the end of this play, uh, everyone and everything abandons every man save for knowledge, which is to say the saving knowledge of, of Christ's grace. And then good deeds. Uh, and so those two things follow him into his encounter with death and, in fact, escort him uh, into the age to come. Uh, and likely, I mean, Martin Luther would have said that, you know, uh, knowledge of the salvation of Christ certainly should have been part of that, but good deeds should not. Good deeds, Martin Luther, I mean, at the very least in uh, On the Freedom of a Christian, regards as something that is for the sake of the neighbor here in this age between ages, but that ultimately, eschatologically, uh, it is only the good deed of Christ that really matters at all uh, in the age to come. Um, you know, as far as that goes, I think that, you know, someone like Erasmus in, you know, on the freedom of the will, uh, or even, you know, I'm trying to think of um, other figures that I might, I, I might throw in here, but might say that, uh, what we're looking at is, you know, an interpretation of Ephesians 2 uh, that actually takes the full picture of Ephesians 2 into play, namely that those good works, uh, if in fact salvation comes by the grace of God through the faithfulness of Christ for the sake of good works, then the good works are part of that narrative, narrative pardon me, of salvation just as much as the, as the former two are, so they deserve to be part of this. Uh, so, you know, to think of the, the structure of this thing, uh, you know, basically you have uh, two groups of betrayals, right? You have the betrayal of fellowship, cousin, kinship, and goods in the first round. Uh, and then, you know, knowledge and good deeds come and, you know, usher every man into the second set of companions, for lack of a better term, namely... Uh, beauty, strength, and the five wits, and I might be leaving one out there. You guys can correct me here in a second. Uh, and that trio also betrays him, abandons him. Uh, so, I mean, I think that it is still uh, a pretty stark message that everything in this world, whether it be your connections to other human beings or the things that constitute your capacity as a human being, none of those things follow you into the next world. Really, the point of disagreement will be uh, are the good deeds that we do in this world uh, something that are part of God's salvation, uh, or are they completely distinct the way that strength, beauty, and the five wits are? Um, now, I, I, I fear that that was an insufficiently Protestant interpretation of that, David, so uh, would you differ? <laughs> um, I, I really, really, really go back and forth on this one. Um, and this is just you know, tracking my, you know, my sense of it. Um, he seems to go pretty quickly from fear of hell to fear of purgatory fairly swiftly um, in, in, the, in the way that, frankly, is, is, is pretty common in the Middle Ages. Um, that, you know, it's that, that salvation uh, in terms of deliverance from hell is a... Uh, is is mediated by the sacraments um so that what is really on a lot of people's minds is not fear of hell but feel but fear of purgatory um and at least you know m much of the you know towards towards the uh, i don't know probably probably half you know the, the the third mark the half mark um that that shift to i need to develop works um you know, lest I be, you know, lest I come into fearful purgation, um, is is something that seems to to be to be more of more of a concern. Um, right, and it's a reminder, David, that Dante's vision of purgatory, which is the one that I spend the most time thinking about, 
is a very particular vision of purgatory. It's not by any means the only way that people in this period think about the afterlife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was something that was anticipated with fear, even if it was theoretically for their soul's good. Right. Um, one, a couple of things that I find interesting. One that I think Luther would go, yay! Another, I think, would make him go, boo! Um, which is that when everyone else abandons good deeds and kind of as he is at this moment of death, uh, good deeds, good deeds speaks and every man speaks and they, they, they alternate and whatever every man says, every man says, have mercy on me, God, most mighty and stand by me, thou mother and maid, holy Mary. Here I cry, God, mercy into thy hands, Lord, I commend and my soul. I commend receive it, Lord, that it be not lost as thou me boughtest, So me defend and save me from the fiend's boast that I may appear with that blessed host that shall be saved at the day of doom. Um, so as he's dying, every man is saying things that I think would make Luther clap, except for, you know, maybe the, the, the invocation of Mary. I'm not, you know, not entirely certain about that one. Um, but then good deeds keep saying, don't worry, man, I'm with you. I've got your back. <laughs> no, fear not. I will speak for thee. Right. So on one hand, you have this dying soul that keeps, you know, appealing to God for mercy and appealing to, to Christ for uh, the salvation he provides while grace stands next to him saying, don't worry, man, or good, good deeds stands next to him saying, don't worry, man, I've got your back. Um, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that to me, looking through Lutheran lenses looks like a, a weird and a weird mis mismatched juxtaposition, but surely the, those who wrote it and those who watched it didn't experience it that way. Yeah, that makes some good sense. I think it's also worth noting where Good Deeds gets his power from. So Good Deeds exists before every man does any, but he's hobbled by sin. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And then, then when he finds knowledge, knowledge tells him, Ask God mercy, and he will grant, truly, when, when with the scourge of penance man doth him bind, the oil of forgiveness then shall he find. So it, it seems to me that that grace is preceding good deeds in the sense that grace is coming along with penance. Um, and I think that's important. So I, I, I don't think this is just every man is a good guy so he can go to heaven. I think it's, it's something much closer to God's grace has allowed every man the mercy of repentance. And through that, he is able to do these good deeds that mark him as having received the grace. Now, maybe I'm just trying to let the medieval Catholics off the hook. I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to make them too <laughs> Well, I, no, I, th I think this is a commentary on Ephesians 2 in that respect. Say more words. So, in other words, I mean, I, I agree with Michael that, you know, good deeds lacks the capacity to save every man until the knowledge of the salvation through Christ comes and you know leads every man to confession right uh so i mean the forgiveness does not come from good deeds good deeds do not forgive him you know i mean there's no that i can remember and you guys i mean have taught this more recently so you can correct me here but i don't think they ever invoke the uh the bit in proverbs about you know the charity covers covers over a multitude of sins right i don't remember uh, that, no but instead you have this you know, need uh, for forgiveness to come from heaven before good deeds can actually do anything. So again, I think that it is this, you know, salvation is by the grace of God, it's through the faithfulness of Christ, and it's for the sake of the good deeds, so that the good deeds are indeed part of the picture of salvation, so they do follow him into the age to come, which is where, again, I think that Luther in on the freedom of a Christian would definitely balk. Uh, but it's still God's initiative. It's still the initiative of Christ that gets everything rolling. Yeah. And, and I think the, 
early or earlier on when he first when he first calls for help from good deeds and get, good deeds answer is here i lie cold in the ground thy sins hath hath me sore bound that i cannot stir <laughs> um you know the first the you know the first line from good deeds is hey i'm dead and tied up and buried so good luck buddy um until uh until that forgiveness that comes through hearing the word of knowledge and receiving um, the grace and then suddenly now good works is alive and it can do things um, you know and the the Lutheran in me and the Calvinist in me goes yay um, I guess the, the 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 interesting thing here is not necessarily the role of grace in in works or that even our good works would be, um, an end towards which our salvation would work, but what is the function of good works in every man, or what's, or you know, what in what the reformed uh, call sanctification? Like, what what is the end that sanctification or good works serves? And you know, I, I guess that would be the 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 place where um, the debate the debate in every man um would, would focus uh t what what are what are good deeds doing anyway I, I i don't intend to resolve it but i'm trying to you know i i just found it very interesting because i had not ever put together the fact that every man is written and being performed at the time when these kind of first generation reformation uh debates are happening Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's... I, I think, David, it's because we always refer to it as a medieval play, which it is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is contemporary with those early events that we call Reformation as well. When we forget that Martin Luther was a medieval guy. I mean, as much, as much as we talk about how Martin Luther dismisses medieval theologians, he's kind of a medieval theologian. <laughs> Anyway, uh, the most chilling moment in every man for me uh, is when every man is abandoned by his five wits. So, Michael, what problems does that moment pose to our ideas about self and salvation? And does every man have answers about that moment, at least ones that would satisfy you? I take five wits to be some combination of human reason and, like, empirical abilities. Is that accurate? It's not just the senses, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's yeah. all of human ratiination. Um, and and if, if that's true, it makes sense that five wits would abandon him at the end of life. I mean, you think about dementia, decreased capacities, things like that. And it's, it's chilling because that's where we're all headed, right? If you live long enough, you outlive your brain. And uh, and that's that's kind of terrifying. Now, I don't know how much they would have known about dementia in the Middle Ages, because I'm not sure how many people long, lived long enough to get it. Can you answer that question? Um, certainly there were enough long lived people for that to be okay. for that to be known. So, um, I mean, yeah. I think that's what that's a presentation yeah. of is is this 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 fact that at the end of our lives, we can't really think the way we used to. Uh, I, I do think. One thing that's interesting is knowledge does not leave him until the very last moment. So knowledge does not follow him into the grave, but it follows him right up to the edge of it. Um, so if you take if you take abandonment by five wits as an expression of dementia, that would suggest that the Alzheimer's patient knows something deeper than she can discuss, or maybe even she knows something deeper than she knows, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that yeah. good deeds goes all the way suggests that it's the things we do, uh, so the person we've become in that in that virtue ethics tradition, that really matters for our salvations. We become that person through grace and repentance, but ultimately, um, that's what we are. That's what's saved is we're we're the virtuous person or the person uh, more or less on the road to virtue. Does that make sense? So, so like, like losing your reason is only terrifying if it's your reason that saves you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. 
that's not the only reason it would be terrifying but that's well, why, that's why right, it would right. be spiritually terrifying yeah so I mean, sometimes if... sometimes david when i was growing up and maybe you heard this and maybe you didn't when i was heard when i was growing up i was told that uh that when you die and meet God, he's going to ask you why he should let you into heaven. And you have to have the right answer, which is, I I can't remember what they told us. But I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, your son. Uh, and and if, if that's what happens when you die, I understand why the loss of five wits would be would be a terrifying thing. Because uh, if you don't have your five wits, I'm not sure I, you can remember that answer. I, in fact, I couldn't remember yeah. it just now. So <laughs> what, what chance do I have? But if if salvation is about you becoming a different sort of person, a virtuous person, a, a sanctified person, a godly person, then I think the condition of your mind at the moment of your death is much less important. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, and I, I, I appreciate your you know bringing in you know kind of the way the way that the way that it was taught. You know how how will why will God let you into His heaven? Um. I think it's very common in evangelical um, s- Protestant circles to think of the faith that saves in terms of a kind of living, conscious, continuing, pious stance of mind and heart. And if my confidence if 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 I believe that we are saved by grace through faith, then you know I might. And there's a lot of a lot of this is in you know that uh, the Philip Carey book that we're constantly bringing up. Good uh, 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 good news for anxious Christians. Anxious Christians. Yeah, that's the title. Um, that if you, if you think of faith simply as how I am consciously thinking and feeling in relation towards God, then suddenly all of my sense of security depends on, do I continue to think and feel in that way? And at that, and, and if, if that's where your sense of security lies, as you, as you walk in that lonesome valley by yourself, the notion that I would reach a point in life where I am no longer in control of what I think and how I feel, um, can become very terrifying. Um, that the notion that if, if my five wits are the only thing that holds on to the faith that saves, um, uh, not just death, but, but old age itself becomes terrifying. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is why I think the important question, at least as every man presents it is, am I a new creation? Because every man is a new creation. The penance he goes through and the mortification of the flesh he undertakes and the grace that made those things possible has made him into a person for whom good deeds can be powerful. And I I think that's his that's his the good deeds are the proof that he's a new creation, that he is saved, justified, sanctified. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the medieval Catholic makes a huge distinction between sanctification and justification. Not really. I don't but, think so. But but I I think I think that's where his that's where his faith is, and and so I I think I I don't think losing five wits is as terrifying for him as it is for us. Right. Yeah. I I, I find it so fascinating that five wits leaves, but knowledge stays, and and I, and also every man keeps talking. <laughs> I know it's an allegory, but every man, you don't have your five wits. How are you still talking? Have you never met an <laughs> Alzheimer's patient, David? No, no, that's true. That's true. But he's still saying things that are to the point. It's not as if at, at a particular point every man begins acting as if. Um, well, and I guess that's why when I've taught this, David, and when I've you know read it prepping for this episode, I assume that five wits referred to the five senses rather than to reason. Mm. Yeah. It, so, I mean, this you is, know. you know, you lose your eyesight you lose your hearing you lose i mean this is something that is very common to you know aging right right i i would be really interested to see what whether whether there was any consensus because i i read i read it the way that you did michael um and and it's and it and it scared me for precisely that reason i know here's here's why here's why i think my reading is a good one um it's it's five wits who makes the case for the priest he says, uh, therefore, let us priesthood honor and follow their doctrine for our soul's succor. We be their sheep and they shepherds be by whom we all 
be kept in surety. Now, your your empirical senses probably do have something to do with that, especially in a religion like Catholicism that's so embodied. But uh, I that sounds like that sounds like reason to me rather than just your senses. Okay, and I, I guess again, yep. because he continues to speak reasonably after the five wits depart, I assume that that was just what you just now said, Michael. The the ability to hear the word proclaimed and to you know taste and see that the Lord is good and so on and so forth. So I, I, I like hearing you two talk about it in terms of reason. I think that's a good reading. It's just not one that I'd ever considered before. Well, it's also possible that. Um, we we simply conceive of um, ex- explain what is happening in phenomena like dimension and different in dementia in different ways um, than uh, a medieval uh, the medieval thinker who produces this uh, play um, the way he the way he thinks about it um, he may actually interpret dementia as a result of losing. Um, losing the the proper uh proper access to or or impairment of the five wits he may not regard it as in some sense a loss of reason as it is an an impairment of interaction well let me critique my own reading because it just now occurred to me even though i've taught this play three or four times uh he can still hear what knowledge and good deeds say to him after five wits departs. (laughs) that's true and he's still talking to him yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that doesn't take, you know, any of the five senses, but I mean, to respond to conversation does. I just right. say allegory. Yeah. yeah. Prob- <laughs> yeah. If, if that's the most unrealistic thing about this play, uh, I think we're probably okay. Point taken, point taken. Well, gentlemen, we've talked about the things that I think are interesting. So what would y'all bring up at the end? Nathan? What fascinates me about this play uh, is the very beginning, uh, and, you know, David or Michael, I mean, if you have ever seen any artwork of actual medieval productions of this, I'd be fascinated to hear about them. Uh, But what I would like to know is, you know, there in the late 15th, early 16th centuries, what did it look like to have God as a character on stage? Uh, This is, you know, uh, what kind of jumps out at me every time, because, I mean, when Goethe does it, um, I'm kind of all right with it because Goethe doesn't really have a whole lot of chips on the table as far as orthodoxy goes. Uh, but when every man does it, I mean, like Michael said, I mean, this is a play uh, that is very interested in uh, getting people to the confession booth, and yet it seems to be flying in the face of, you know, the prohibition of images of God in the very first opening lines of the thing so maybe uh, they use a priest who is isn't isn't the priest kind of god i know in orthodoxy the priest is like an icon of god is that is that true of medieval well certainly the priest is a vicar of christ uh but the fact that it's you know in the script you know labeled as god rather than christ i I suppose (laughs) i assumed that it meant god the father but i could be wrong about that god god talks about him being crucified he he says that I I was crucified. So okay, at the, at the very there least, it's the whole Trinity talking. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Yep. Um, and it was there's several kind of I, iconic uh, iconographic options that they would have had open at this point. Um, you know, either uh, God as the old white bearded man. Um, often God was dressed up in. Uh, Episcopal robes, um, but the the third option would be uh, the Christomorphic uh, presentation of God, making uh, even God the Father look like a larger but still very sort of received image of Jesus looking figure. Um, and given the fact that he talks of, that 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 he speaks of being crucified, um, they they would probably represent him um, as Christ. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Michael, what have you got? Uh, Every man uh, appeals to common sense a number of times in the play. And when I first was reading it and thinking about it, it seemed to me that common sense was often proved right. So, for example, after uh, after fellowship deserts him, he says in prosperity, men friends may find 
which when ad which in adversity be full unkind and he presents that as like a common saying more often though uh the common sense is wrong um then there i have a number of them here but there's more uh for kind uh, you know kindred will creep where it may not go in, in other words the the your family is gonna stick around you uh for it is said uh every among that money maketh all right that is wrong that's when he tries to bribe death i believe there's a couple <laughs> more like that so he, he frequently appeals to this common wisdom which is just completely laughably incorrect and and that's interesting to me because uh catholicism tends to present the reason as something that can you know get you further than protestants do and yet here at least common reason which would not be terribly reasoned out i suppose is uh is frequently deceptive hmm. i mean we already established how every man is living his life through a false idea of what is valuable and what it means uh to invest properly so yeah um, so of course he would trust the masses instead of the church hierarchy that makes sense anyway i don't believe proverbs i think is the the ultimate <laughs> message of every man small small p proverbs <laughs> Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you all for uh, working through Every Man with me. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it, and I hope you have too, dear listeners. Uh, if you would like to give us any uh, feedback on this episode, you can send it to uh, our email at uh, uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it on the show notes uh, for this episode on our blog the, at christianhumanist.org, or you can post them on Facebook. Uh, you can like our Facebook page and give us good ratings on iTunes and things of that nature. Well, gentlemen, what are we doing next week? Well, it is 2018, which means it's the 20th anniversary of the film Prince of Egypt, which was uh, one of my favorite Bible movies when it came out in 1998 and remains possibly my favorite Bible movie now. So we're going to talk about that next week. So listeners, fire up Netflix and uh, sing along loudly. Excellent. Well, you've been listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>